Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the issue of the Zaporozhia uh, nuclear power plant in Ukraine and uh, the role that plays in the ongoing war inside that country, along with the issue of the uh, uh, proposed price cap on Russian oil. Also going to be uh, touching on the uh, constitutional vote that's upcoming in Chile and what it could mean for the trajectory of that country. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment. With the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by journalist and author Dan Lazare. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, uh, Rafael Grassi, who's the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, um, has paid a visit to the Zaporozhia a nuclear power station in southeastern Ukraine, saying that, quote, its physical integrity had been, quote, violated. And um, this has become a real uh, sticking point with the real apparent danger attached to it as it concerns uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine. And uh, I'm just wondering uh, how you, uh, what you're making of uh, this whole situation at this point and uh, what it could mean for this conflict. Well, I, I think the whole thing is just a, a, a giant phony issue. It's not phony. I mean, there's a real nuclear power plant there. and There's a real war raging uh, all around it, and that's really dangerous. But, uh, but let's be clear that the, the shelling is coming from the Ukrainian side. The, uh, the Russians occupy the plant. They control it. There's a, a Ukrainian crew operating it. But there's no doubt that the Russians uh, you know, have possession and that the shells are coming from the other side. So, you know, so the Ukrainians accuse the uh, Russians of, uh, of, you know, of putting the whole world in danger by engaging in very dangerous, you know, activities in close proximity to a nuclear power plant, plant, uh, but they're the ones who are doing it. I mean, they're Russian, they're accusing Russia of crimes that, is, that they are, in fact, committing themselves. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and, you know, recently uh, Russia's defense ministry actually accused Ukrainian forces of uh, shelling uh, the plant uh, three times in a 24-hour span. And so, I mean, with all the, you know, just plainly uh, uh, obvious dangers that that's inherent in that, Dan, I mean, why is it that we don't see uh, the kind of outcry? I mean, speaking of, you know, uh, the U.S. and Western uh, European governments uh, uh, around this, because, I mean, you know, for uh, a nuclear power plan to be disrupted in a particular way is something that would have or could have really devastating impacts uh, in a level of ways. But it seems that, you know, any uh, criticism uh, of the Ukrainian side or of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is sort of verboten uh, within the, uh, the ethos in the West at this moment. And I mean, I think that what we're seeing at Zaporozhia is just one example of how dangerous that can be. Well, not only is truth the first victim of, of war, but you know, but 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 simple logic is. I mean, I mean, the, you know, these people just make no sense. There's just no reason for Russia to be to be to be shelling a facility that they control. That's not how war works. And uh, and it's clear who the guilty party is, and that clearly is the Ukraine. 
But yeah, you know, but 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 plainly, there's a major propaganda campaign going on, uh, and the the first principle of that that propaganda campaign is you can't say anything good about Russia, and you can only say good stuff about uh, about the Ukraine. So that's what that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, and you know, as a journalist, Dan, I'm wondering what you think. That kind of narrative, which is certainly nothing new we're seeing from the West and the U.S. in terms of countries that it deems to be um, uh, uh, enemies. But what do you think this kind of, you know, propaganda does to uh, the consciousness of a people? You know, what what kind of uh, uh, rippling effects do you think this could have in the way that uh, the people of the United States and the West sort of conceive not only of the war in Ukraine, but, I mean, on geopolitical issues sort of in general? You know what I mean? Because, I mean, I'm of the opinion that, uh, well, I mean, I'm of the opinion that the people in the U.S. are some of the most uh, propagandized people in the world. But also, that's a result of just this, these incessant uh, 24-7 sort of messages that we're getting that are always completely devoid of any real uh, historical context as it pertains to this conflict. So one is left to believe that Vladimir Putin just woke up one fine day and decided that he wanted to um, invade Ukraine and that nothing that happened before that can even be mentioned. And if you do, you're accused of being worshipful of the Russian government. But even to raise this is not necessarily to defend the invasion, but to just try to give a fuller picture of what's actually happening. But that just seems like it's not allowed here in the U.S. And it's hard not to feel, Dan, that this could have some real negative impacts on a people's consciousness. It's crazy that propaganda is incessant. I mean, it's 24-7. It's all around us. We're being told what to think. Um, and the And the the goal is to turn the American people into docile little instruments of American foreign policy. But I think it's going to backfire. I mean, I think that uh, as, the, as the economic hit you know, deepens um, and the pain grows, I think that Americans will start questioning. I think they already are. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone believes in substance anymore. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that, that Vladimir Putin, you know, you know, uh, invaded the uh, the Ukraine because he's evil, and that's what evil people do. I mean, it makes no sense. It's, it's, a, it's a, a fairy tale. Um, and I think that people are starting to, to rebel, uh, to fight back, uh, that the political fallout is growing, and, it's, and it's, it's increasingly negative from a NATO point of view. And I think the process will go on. Yeah, when you say it's increasingly negative from a NATO uh, point of view, uh, uh, how do you mean? I'm just curious because, you know, obviously NATO is a huge aspect of what we're seeing here. Well, I mean, all across Europe we're seeing, and then and in the U.S. as well, we're seeing just, you know, political opposition growing. Now, it's not always taking a positive direction. Now, that is the, obviously, I'm the first one to admit that. But, you know, in Italy, the next prime minister could well be Georgia uh, Maloney who is as the leader of the Italian Brotherhood, the Fratelli d'Italia, which is essentially a neo-fascist party. And, and her party is very cool to the war, and that's why she's making advance, advances, because the economy is sinking, the war is unpopular, these, these endless you know, propaganda lies are no longer working, and the people are fed up. Uh, you see the same thing elsewhere in Europe. Political regimes are shaking. They're, 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 they're beginning to totter. The German regime, 
is in big trouble. Uh, the foreign minister uh, just gave a speech the other day in which he says that, yes, Germans will have to put up with, you know, with growing joblessness, sky-high energy prices, and they've got to keep quiet because, you know, because that's what, you know, because Ukraine matters more. But voters aren't going to stand for that. Yeah, and I think it's because of just that reason, Dan, of why I tend to agree with you that uh, this is this this stands to really backfire in the face of the U.S. Because I have a working theory, and it's based on um, my feeling that the U.S. this whole war in Ukraine and the way that they've instigated it with NATO um, is part of an attempt for Washington to basically remain uh, the hegemonic power on the world stage. And so with all the things that they're uh, doing in terms of this war making, both with Russia and with China now, uh, as we see, but when we look at the material consequences of it in the uh, uh, United States and how that tends to, or it appears now to be a, a, a trending people away from a, a support of these things, it actually seems to me that uh, Washington is sort of shooting itself in the foot and maybe actually hastening its own fall by continuing these uh, aggressive actions to remain in control. But, but how do you see it? Essentially agree. I mean, I, I, think, I think that the American empire is in big trouble. Uh, I think it's grossly overextended. Uh, its political leadership is very weak. Uh, the economy is cratering. Uh, real wages are falling. Uh, and, the, uh, the, and the economic distress is not only felt in the U.S., but even more in, the, in Western Europe. Western and Eastern Europe, uh, and the third world, where you know, where, which is being haunted now by famine and bankruptcy. Um, so, uh, so um, I, I think the the, the, the the American global order is uh, is really very shaky. It's falling apart. Uh, and I'm and yes, I'm aware that Biden has had a you know had a few legislative victories recently, so the Democrats are a bit more confident. You know, going into the midterms than they were a couple of months ago, but that's not going to last very long. The 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 the, the vital signs are are, are sinking, um, and the U.S. economy, the U.S. empire, is facing real trouble. Look, America is grossly overexpanded, uh, overextended. It's uh, it's 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 been and it's been increasingly in trouble since two thousand one. It's 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 uh, it's conducted a a series of disastrous wars that have been extraordinarily expensive and create, have created nothing but chaos in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Um, it's, uh, it's bogged down in the Ukraine where things from a U.S. perspective are not going well, and it's facing military cat- catastrophe, nothing less than catastrophe in the Western Pacific, where, where, where tensions with China are heating up in the most dangerous fashion imaginable. So things are really taking a bad turn for the U.S. And, and, and the Biden administration seems intent on making things even worse <laughs> with everything it does. So the outlook is extremely dark. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, that's the case. And there's another aspect uh, that's developed here, uh, Dan, and that's this um, issue of uh, the G7 uh, uh, wanting to put a price cap on uh, Russian oil. And I was hoping you could just sort of explain uh, what all of this means and what do you see as the consequences as it pertains to this ongoing conflict? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the latest, you know, it's the latest concoction out of the mind of uh, Janet Yellen. Uh, Yellen is, you know, was one of the architects of the 
of the uh, the real estate, you know, binge of the uh, of the early you know, the, of the twenty aughts that led to disaster in two thousand eight. She was a major cheerleader uh, for for Alan Greenspan, uh, the, the the Fed chairman. Uh, who um, who essentially is the person most responsible for the 2008 meltdown. Uh, and she has now this idea that somehow we're going to pro- impose price caps on Russian oil alone, and that'll prevent uh, Russia from benefiting from the increase in, um, in oil prices, although oil prices actually in the last couple of months have fallen pretty substantially, more than 25%. Um, but it's... It, it, Price caps never work. It really is like um, trying to, to roll back the sea. Uh, uh, they always lead to to distortions in the marketplace, and they have usually have perverse effects. I mean, if, if they try to impose a a cap on Russian oil prices and Russian oil prices alone, then it's clear what will happen. Uh, most of the world will dis- disregard this. They will buy Russian oil, you know, on their own and then resell it to the West at profit to themselves. So Russia will not find itself, you know, locked out of the, uh, out of the, uh, out of the oil markets. And if anything, trying to cap Russian oil prices will probably have the effect of driving oil prices back up. So throughout this entire economic war that we've seen on Russia uh, since uh, February 24th, uh, these measures have consistently backfired. They've wound up hurting NATO more than they've hurt Russia. And if, and if NATO goes ahead and tries to impose some kind of uh, price cap on Russian oil, I think we'll see the same thing where, the, where NATO will wind up shooting itself in the foot. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, it's just completely clear that all of these attempts at uh, sort of economically strangling Russia just clearly have failed one after another. And so I have to ask, Dan, why do they keep trying these different measures? I mean, are they just sort of throwing everything at the wall uh, and hoping something sticks? Is it just sort of a, a, a lack of, you know, a lot of options to have some way to try to contain Russia in this way? I mean, why keep doing these things that that do not work. You know what I mean? It's just sort of a, a strange way of operating, particularly when we continue to see that not only does it not work, but as you're highlighting, I think correctly, it blows back negatively, uh, particularly on the people of these nations. Well, because, you know, because nothing is working. The empire is not working. When an empire fails, that means that it, it ceases to work. And, and, and whatever it does to try to reverse its fortune, you know, ends up not working as well. You know, so I mean, you know, you know, you know, the sanctions were once seen as the as the miracle weapon. You know, I mean, this you know, this is decades ago. You know, it was simply by you know imposing certain trade restrictions, the U.S. would be able to bend, you know, other countries to its will, uh, and it hasn't worked out that way. I mean, sanctions are very complicated. They uh, they they have perverse side effects. They often don't you know don't have the the consequences you want them to have. Um, and in the case of Russia, they really have royally backfired because really uh, three-fourths of the, of the world's population is refusing to go along. So, so even, though the, even though the U.S. wants people to think that, 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 that Vladimir Putin is reviled the world over, the opposite is really the case. I mean, Russia has 
engendered a great deal of sympathy in the third world. And, and the third world is happy to see the U.S., you know, over its own two feet because the U.S. has been, has been the bully. It, it has, you know, advan- you know, it's advanced double standards in the most glaring way possible. And so people are glad to see it, see it finally get its come up. Um, you know, so, but yet, what can the U.S. do? It doesn't want to get in a shooting war with Russia because it, it remembers the last time, <laughs> it remembers what last happened when the army invaded Russia, you know, and, and got a bit, you know, ran into a bit of trouble on the steps of uh, Ukraine and southern Russia. Uh, and it doesn't want to repeat that same mistake. Uh, so economic sanctions are all that it has left, but they're not working very well either. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here at Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming constitutional vote in Chile. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Patricio Zamorano, director of the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. Patricio, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, how are you? It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And Patricio, in the coming days, the people of Chile will be able to decide in a referendum about whether to reject or approve the text of a new constitution constitution, which uh, would be the first such constitution in the country's history that was actually uh, drafted in a democratic situation. And this comes after uh, almost uh, three years of a process in putting this whole thing together. And I was hoping you could help us understand the importance of this vote, the importance of the progress of putting this new uh, constitution together and uh, what it means for Chile at this point. Sure. Well, it means basically a process to rebuild a a democratic uh, institutional framework that was always uh, under the shadow of the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. We have to remember that Chile is still governed by this constitution that was created in in 1980, and a constitution that actually was approved in a referendum with with no controls, basically, under a military rule. That same constitution is incredible, but is still out there. So what we had during all this time was a constitution that actually was was changed a little bit. Uh, it's true that the constitution is not a hundred percent what 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 Pinochet imposed a long time ago. Uh, we have some amendments little by little, uh, but still the core of the uh, 1980 constitution is still extremely conservative, uh, extreme, extremely neoliberal, and that's the main point. That's, that's, the, that's the core of the reforms that uh, Chileans are trying to implement. Hopefully this, this coming Sunday to eliminate this neoliberal structure and to generate a, something more, more in the way of what the Chilean people want, basically a little bit 
uh, a stronger role of the of the state uh, in three key elements: basically, health, education, and the pension system. So that's that's a little bit of of a of a summary of what's going on right now. Definitely. And I mean, it's noteworthy what you point out, uh, Patricio, that the last time that, uh, you know, a constitution was implemented in Chile, it was under the brutal dictatorship of uh, Augusto Pinochet and indeed has been in place even after Pinochet was out of power. And I have a kind of a broad question to ask in relation to that, Patricio, because you point out, I think correctly, about the impacts of neoliberalism on Chile. And so what has that looked like uh, over the years? And what kind of impacts has it had on the uh, Chilean people and, and why this uh, new constitutional process uh, was so necessary? Sure. I mean, it's not a mystery why we have this extreme uh, social unrest in the last three years. And let me correct myself, since I live in Chile during the 80s, I live in Chile during the 90s, this unrest has been always there. It's been always there. The people have been mobilizing a lot in the last 40 years, but in the last three years, it, it was extremely violent, extremely evident, the desperation of the people. We have to remember that Chile is, is one of the top 10 most unequal countries in the whole planet. The poor people in Chile are extremely poor and the rich people are extremely rich. You go to Santiago, you can see with your own eyes the polarization of, of social situation between the upper class neighborhoods and the and the working uh, families. Uh, the contradiction are 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 huge, and the constitution creating this system where you get social services based on your income. Basically, uh, if you if you have a very good salary, if you have a good good uh, savings, a very good job, then you enjoy a lot of benefits. If you don't have those those conditions, if you if you struggle in terms of income, uh, then the constitution imposes on on you very bad situation in terms of health. For example, why? Because in Chile, the whole health system is private, was privatized by the constitution of 1980, meaning is according to your income. The the state-based health system is extremely, is extremely bad. We know enough funds, we know enough professionals working there, conditions are horrible. You need an urgent surgery, you need to wait three, four months. It's, it's just, it's just, extremely painful for most of the population. The same with the education system. The education was privatized as well, and the the state actually um, uh, gave away the right to uh, to handle the education of Chileans. So now we have a whole private system, a network of high schools and universities that are private. So you, you have very good incomes, again, you get a very good education. If you don't have those that that status, then you are the education that you are able to provide to to your sons and daughters is just very poor. And the same and the same thing with the pensions. Pensions were privatized again, so meaning people with very good salaries are able to accrue more money when they are that they can use when they get older, when they retire. So if you see, imagine a society where where you are a living reality based on things that you cannot control. Because if you have bad education, then you have a bad a bad job because you didn't educate yourself enough. Then you have very low salaries. Then you, you don't have a way to get health. And if you don't get health when you get older, you get a very bad salary, no no health insurance. So basically you create a sense of desperation. And that's the, that's the situation in Chile 
if you go if you go to the country now, you will feel a sense of desperation. People are desperate, so they want change. And that that's why the uh, the opening door to reform the constitution a couple of years ago got 80% of the vote. It's historic, and in very few countries you you get a referendum or any election where you get 80% of the vote in favor of something. So in this case, it's really it's really strong. Yeah, and Patricia, what can you tell us about the process of uh, drafting this uh, constitution? Because, I mean, we talk about, you know, putting together a constitution for an entire country. I'd imagine that is quite a complex process, particularly if if that process um, uh, entails, you know, the, the, the participation of masses of people. So what do we know about this uh, process and how it played out? I mean, particularly I'm interested because, I mean, here in the United States, this government won't even entertain the idea of, uh, uh, you know, changing the, the, the constitution it's treated as almost a holy document, I think, to the detriment of a lot of us. But uh, how did this sort of unfold in Chile here? Sure. Uh, what we're going to have on Sunday, this this coming Sunday, is the the end of our very complex process. It started like a, like a year ago or more than that when we have a referendum to ask the people, do you want to reform this, this constitution? And that's the number I just quoted. Uh, almost 80%, 79% of the population said, yes, we want a new constitution. Then deputies were elected. Uh, 154 deputies were elected in a very, very democratic way, uh, in a way that political, that the political, the political parties, the traditional political parties didn't have a strong presence. So they put more emphasis on civil society groups, right? Uh, gender-based groups, rural, the rural life of Chile, um, indigenous people, uh, gender-based, etc., uh, etc. Et so we really had a very good diversity of of Chileans represented am- among those 154 deputies, and the left actually got uh, more than 70 percent of that of that assembly. That assembly wrote a new draft. And the law gave them between nine and twelve months. They 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 basically took one year to write this new constitution. It's a massive constitution, which is a problem. Actually, it's one of the problems that have created some some issues for the uh, for the approval. We we are talking about three hundred eighty something articles, fifty thousand words. So it's a very big draft. The new law that authorized the the writing of the new constitution says that that this Sunday, the uh, Chileans in 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 mandatory vote is mandatory. All of us need to go and vote to accept or reject this new constitution. So that's approximately. A very summarized process, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And of course, this is happening um, under the the new government of uh, Gabriel Boric, a young sort of a progressive uh, leading uh, leader there in Chile. And, you know, I'm wondering how you see sort of uh, his election and presidency sort of playing into the political terrain uh, inside Chile at this moment and just how, you know, different, frankly, it seems than uh, what we've seen within that country. Country for some years now. It was uh, basically Boris represents the entry of a new a, a new wave of progressive forces. He doesn't belong to the traditional left. He actually is a very interesting story because his party was created just in 2018, and in less than three four years he be- became president. So that represents a new wave of uh, ways to uh, understand the left in Chile. It's not the traditional 
Socialist Party, although the Communist Party, the party of Victor Jara and Pablo Neruda, for uh, for our listeners, that that Communist Party is part of the of the new government. So the the question now, I would say, uh, Sean, and it's something that we haven't talked about, is what happens if the Constitution is rejected this Sunday? Because I want to talk about that because. Boris will be in a very uncomfortable situation if the constitution is rejected because according to the law that we are using for this referendum, if the constitution is rejected, then the military constitution of 1980 will prevail again. And that's that's a situation that is creating a, a lot of tensions in the country because the polls are not clear. Uh, some of them uh, uh, declare that the rejection option will win. There's a lot of questions about that. We have a very similar situation when Boris was actually elected, that some of the polls thought that cast the ultra-right-wing candidate was going to win. At the end, Boris won by more than 10 points. So uh, we don't know. We There's a lot of uh, concern about what's, what's going to happen on Sunday, so we can talk a little bit about that, maybe. Yes, please do. We we are in a very delicate situation right now because, as I said, the polls are very are very ambiguous, and it's very hard to understand why the situation will be different than people approving the the constitution. Because, as I said, eight out of ten Chileans they they wanted a new a new constitution. The polls are telling us that we have right now an average 40-something percent against the, the new constitution. We have 30 to 35 percent approving the new constitution, but we have 15 percent, approximately 15, 20, depending on the sources, people who haven't made a decision. So that's why uh, the situation is, is, is very volatile now. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't have an answer for, for what could happen if this new constitution is actually rejected, because the the right wing and conservative groups in Chile, uh, they have lost all these stages of preparation. They lost the first question. Um, basically, people accepted to have a new constitution. They, they had a huge campaign against that. Then they lost uh, among the deputies. They are a minority, right? Less than 25% of the of the of the new assembly who who wrote the the constitution. And now. Uh, they are putting a lot of efforts, uh, dirty campaign, uh, painting a situation where the the country will be like a like a communist country, etc., etc. Using those 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 old flags against the approval. So the situation is very critical now. So that's why we are really really nervous, expecting what's going to happen this coming Sunday. Yeah, and I appreciate you uh, sort of describing these uh, dynamics because I suppose we can't presume that it is uh, going to pass. I mean, given what is being uh, laid out here, and I agree that it would be quite a difficult situation if it did not. But uh, I'm also wondering, Patricio, is, 
you know, with uh, a new president and potentially uh, a new uh, constitution in Chile, what do you think that means uh, for Latin America as a region? I mean, it's seen, I think, several uh, progressive and left-leaning presidents come in to office here, and uh, soon we'll be seeing uh, uh, an election in Brazil as well between um, uh, popular candidate Lula da Silva, of course, himself a former president of Brazil, and the far-right to Ajayi. Uh, Bolsonaro, just to give one example. And, you know, so from from a regional standpoint, how do you see a new Chile, if you will, uh, factoring into uh, uh, the politics of Latin America? Sure. I mean, this is going to be a really, I would say, if the new constitution is is approved, and that along to the fact that uh, Boris was, was elected president, it's going to be the end of this view that, that Chile is all, all, almost like the standard model for neoliberal policies we have to remember that chile became this 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 example right of a country who, who can implement neoliberal policies and be successful at the same time we know that that was a lie it was not based on on the actual lives of chilean people um, that created a lot of tension a lot of suffering for for so many years so I would say that in terms of the regional environment, Chile will will become something different. So people won't be able to say now, especially if the new constitution is actually approved, a constitution that is extremely progressive, it, it creates a huge amount of, of human rights, civil rights. It recognizes the, the rights of indigenous people, even creating autonomy, legal autonomy, for, for indigenous people, it creates an, a several obligations of the state regarding gender inclusion, the environment, in terms of uh, integration of um, of the whole variety of Chileans. It's very progressive. So in that sense, and and of course, it's going to eliminate the for-profit dynamic for key aspects of society, um, especially education, health. Retirement. So, in that sense, Chile uh, won't. Uh, we won't be able to use Chile a, again as a model of neoliberal policies in terms of the regional aspect of of politics. Right? We will have. We will have a new situation, a new wave of progressive uh, uh, vibes from the southern corn. We we have to remember that Argentina also is governed by the left. Right now, Bolivia, uh, so Peru, etc., etc. So we really have a new wave of progressive push to basically as a as a very obvious response to what happened with ne- with neo- neoliberal policies for so many years. I mean, it's a very it's, it's very logical what's going on here because people are really exhausted and they want some protection. They want a better quality of, of life. So that's 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 that's. Very obvious. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Patricio, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, uh, glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Nate, it's uh, being reported that Russian and U.S. uh, authorities are discussing a potential prisoner swap that could possibly free WNBA star Brittany Griner along with Paul Whelan, who I believe is a Marine veteran. And uh, I'm just sort of wondering where you think the whole Brittany Griner situation stands uh, uh, today and uh, how you think it's been unfolding up to this point. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that we have this development of uh, Trevor Reed, you know, the Marine who was traded for the pilot, Constantine, I'm just, I forget the last name right now, but the Russian pilot is in U.S. custody. This was back in April, and that prisoner swap happened in Istanbul. Um, evidently, Turkey does not want to be, you know, party to this again, so I think it has to be worked out somewhere else. I mean, the whole sticking point is, uh, you know, we've talked about this already, that the two-for-one swap the U.S. is trying to do to get... Uh, Reiner and then Paul Whelan, the, I don't know, whatever you were, alleged spy <laughs> from the Russian perspective, you know, both released in exchange for Victor Bout, who was famously put, played by Nicolas Cage in the 2005 film Lord of War. So there, there have been, the reason I bring up the Trevor Reed appearance on CBS is that he goes into, like, you know, there there is no, and look, I mean, if you're, you're in prison in another country, I'm, I'm sure it's, it, the conditions are, are not great, uh, so I'm not trying to sit here and <laughs> act like uh, he should be, uh, you know, happy about what happened, you know, or whatever, but what he's saying just dovetails so just neatly with all the U.S. messaging propaganda that there is no legal system in Russia, that there, and, and there is no due process. There is, it's all a sham. Everything is fake. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there's, there's, there's corruption everywhere, but it's just like the, the, the implied message there is clearly that when you juxtapose that with our amazing legal system and uh, the, the core principles of classical liberalism that sort of, uh, you know, maintain them that, that are, that are, you know, that are, that are core that, um, and, and that people kind of uphold as a model for the world, um, that that's, you know, sort of unassailable. And uh, I think that's sort of where the, the propaganda element slips in when you hear Trevor Reed being interviewed and also talked about and, and, and then, and then speaking authoritatively too about, uh, um, the, the, the Brittany Griner, like distrust. If you ever hear this, like the highest levels of government are working to free you, which shows that, I mean, he is coordinating with like national security state officials with this messaging. Um, he's not even trying to hide it. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And it's an interesting thing that even within this particular issue, because, I mean, you know, you would think that the main thing at hand would be to try to bring uh, uh, Brittany Griner home. But, I mean, I feel like throughout this entire situation, I mean, the U.S., for its part, has not missed an opportunity to infuse this uh, wartime propaganda as it pertains to Russia, whereas the Russian side has been a pretty uh, tight lip about it, actually, I think, and has actually sort of uh, criticized the U.S. for uh, trying to use, you know, what they consider public diplomacy to to uh, uh, sort of hash this out. But, I mean, how do you see uh, that sort of propaganda aspect sort of factoring to the way that the Brittany Griner uh, uh, situation has sort of been portrayed to us, Nate? I mean, certainly on the show— We've maintained that, you know, this is someone caught up in a conflict that has nothing to do with her. But in a way, it almost feels like Washington is uh, uh, sort of utilizing this uh, serious situation to, I mean, basically push a pro-imperialist narrative. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, I don't think they want to lose the the propaganda 
narrative and the value of that by getting her released too soon. Um, I, I just, I'm just going ahead and say it. Now, is that something I could sit back and show you a, a, a leaked document of with evidence proving it? No, but I'm just saying based on uh, the pattern of behavior we've seen so far and then the ability to continue, um, you know, marshalling public opinion, um, especially with since the, the, the onset of the special military operation, the conflict in Ukraine, they, it's more useful having the issue on the table. Um, it's sort of like how many Republicans are seeing now that, you know, once Roe v. Wade's overturned, which people could see coming for kind of a long time, if we're honest, but when we saw the way the court was being composed and constructed in the last you know, decade or so, um, you know, it's easier to run on that as an issue, right, when it hasn't been, you know, overturned. And then there's like the actual people that, um, you know, would vote Republican and say they're pro-life or whatever. But when the circumstances face them, suddenly uh, act in different ways. Uh, so I think with the U.S., like in terms of their, their propaganda strategy, media strategy, all tied into the idea we got to keep the weapons flowing. We got to portray Russia as just a complete a country with with the, with the absence of the rule of law. There, there's, there is no, you know, it's just it's complete randomness. It's everything's an act. It's all staged. It's all being managed by Putin and and. Um, you know, and, and his, his cronies, and, and, uh, and, and that's it. And uh, therefore, we're deflecting any attention away from our own oligarchy here at home, um, which I feel needs to be just stated more clearly than ever that, like, is the, you know, northern D.C., northern Virginia military and industrial, you know, leadership, you know, the, the private sector that essentially has a revolving door with government and, and, and essentially makes policy in Washington in the most undemocratic forms of, you know, possible. Think about like all the debates we have in Congress, right? It's usually over about the 5% of stuff they actually disagree with. And we never even discuss, like, it's just, you know, a given that we just passed the defense budget, you know, as is with like incremental increases every year, sometimes more than incremental. And that's not even debated, right? So I think that this is just part of that, creating a common sense sort of narrative that it's not, we're not using Brittany Griner as a, as a bargaining chip. We're dealing with just a completely and a sort of an adversary that's beyond comprehension, beyond the pale. And we all want the best for Brittany, but you know, we, we just have to like, we can't, we can't forsake our principles. You know, we can't negotiate with terrorist type, you know, mentality and who's suffering as a result. It's uh Brittany Griner who's tied up and clearly what's a political situation. And unfortunately right now with, while they're working on it, I don't have a lot of hope that it's about to go down here in the next week or two anymore. Yeah, I mean, certainly no government is beyond criticism, but the United States accusing any nation of being lawless is pretty rich. But while we're on the uh, subject of basketball, Nate, I wanted to talk some about uh, the NBA for a moment here as three-time All-Star guard Donovan Mitchell uh, has been traded from the Utah Jazz to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And sports commentator Stephen A. Smith is none too pleased about it as he seemed to want uh, Mitchell to actually make his way to the New York Knicks. And I actually want to play a clip of uh, Smith's reaction uh, to Mitchell's trade, and I want to come back and get your thoughts. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Every single time, man, something goes wrong. I wanted Donovan Mitchell in New York. I shut my mouth. I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word because I didn't want to blow it. I didn't want to get in the way. You got about seven or eight first-round picks. You got R.J. Barrett, you got Julius Randle, you got Toppin, you got Emmanuel Quickly, and you still couldn't get Donovan Mitchell. You still couldn't get him. So once again, we're going to go into another season, and the New York Knicks are devoid of a star. 
They're somewhere other than in a New York Knicks uniform. See, this is what I'm trying to say, man. They make me sick. Nothing ever gets done in New York with the Knicks. Nothing. Nothing. It just never ends with the Knicks. It just never freaking ends. Yeah, so kind of uh, your standard Stephen A. Smith uh, freak out there, Nate, but just uh, curious your thoughts. Well, I mean, you would think he had just uh, got the news from uh, some law enforcement officer at his door that his child had been died in a car accident or something based on that reaction. I mean, I don't mean to make light of uh, serious stuff, but dang, man. I mean, I, just, I mean, look, but it does speak to something, right? And there's a larger point in all this that I wanted to get to. And, uh, you know, it's not just the performative nature of, like, you know, a lot of Stephen A. Smith's rants, which we often, you know, laugh at and chuckle at whatnot. It's the fact that a team like the New York Knicks, a franchise like that, despite having the Brooklyn Nets in the same city, and albeit not in Manhattan, um, they are so have such a, a level of power because of their market share. They're not just in New York City. They're not just the only team in Manhattan. They're not just like kind of the most you know, they don't, but they, they trade on the, the passion and the loyalty people feel towards the colors, the uh, nostalgia of like their relationships and their memories. I mean, this team plays in Madison Square Garden, which is a company, right? It's different from the Madison Square Garden television properties. This is all owned by HBO Scion, Trust Fund Baby, James Dolan, um, who's um, owner of the New York Rangers NHL. You know, club two among many other properties he has, and um, he's notorious for having banned Charles Oakley from Madison Square Garden, former fan favorite. Um, you know, and um, and and really, you know, played played hardball in a lot of situations, micromanaged situations, and made it a situation where free agents simply don't want to come there. Now, Donovan Mitchell was traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers, despite what Stephen A. Smith points out, the Knicks having. A big amount of a huge amount of capital to deal with in terms of draft picks and and players they could have you know put into the deal, but um, I guess didn't want to meet what the, the Utah Jazz general manager Danny Ainge was asking for. And yet again, they are devoid of a superstar and and what many call the mecca of sports in New York City, um, at least in the U.S. mecca. And uh, and, and the New York Knicks fans continue to bemoan all this, but yet the profits roll in. And my point is, is that like we're always told in, under capitalism, right, that you know market forces will work out inefficiencies, right? Will work out lack of productivity, lack of um, you know, success, right? So I mean, just much the way that people are frustrated with their cable company. You know, cable companies a lot of times get monopoly like deals and terms, um, and customer service isn't great. You know, the customer service for fans and, and their capitalism, um, you know, is, is like the reward of, of wins on the court, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the basketball sense. And the Knicks just simply don't deliver in that respect, but they will still sell out their games. They will still make huge TV profits. I mean, I'm sure they, they can make more, um, you know, if they did win and went on a run. Um, but it's not as if, like, there's any real – you know, disincentive is the point um, to, uh, to to lose, but the clip the Knicks have lost that. Um, really, they haven't even you know been to a uh, an NBA Finals since the the you know, the, but the lockout shortened season of 1999, um, and then it, you know it's uh, so it's been a bleak picture. And uh, I think that you know, when you see Stephen A. Smith's reaction, uh, I, I think a lot of Knicks do feel similarly, despite the kind of ridiculousness of like, uh, you know, just kind of crying in that kind of way over a trade and, and what's a sport and what's ultimately a game. But, you know, people are looking for meaning in this world, in a, in a world where a lot of people feel 
disembodied, disempowered, kind of like not fully in control of things due to um, you know, workforce conditions and, and the pressures of living under and demands of living under, you know, the current society we live under, um, you know, put on people, especially financially, emotionally, and all, you know, and many other respects. So I think it's, it's worth taking note of. Definitely. And, you know, uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, we've been talking on the show about the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, which is also impacting of uh, the football program at Jackson State University, of course, under the leadership of uh, popular coach and NFL Hall of Famer uh, uh, Deion Sanders. And uh, this is happening as uh, uh, the student athletes prepare for the season opener game against rival in my alma mater, Florida A&M University. Um, Sanders wrote a post on Instagram earlier this week saying, quote, right now we're operating in crisis mode. We're hit with a little crisis. The city of Jackson, we don't have water. Water means we don't have air conditioning. We can't use toilets. I got to get these kids off campus, the ones that live on campus, the ones that live in the city of Jackson into a hotel and accommodate them so that they can shower properly and take care of their needs. And it was reported later that Sanders had, uh, in fact, found hotel accommodation for his players. And so, you know, I feel like even in the broader question of the water crisis in Jackson, Nate, certainly there are deep and abiding issues of uh, race and class that are bound up in it. I mean, the water infrastructure there has been uh, crumbling for years with nothing done about it. And so, you know, how do you see a sort of the uh, uh, Jackson State of football program sort of factoring into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as just a good illustrative point of like the, the, the problems there. And I, I wish that, you know, uh, Dion and some of the others there would be willing to like do more than just say the devil, you know, the, the, the devil's a lie and we can't, uh, and we're going to overcome them. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, you know, look, I mean, it's fine. But like, I think the larger point here is that the city of Jackson has for years been uh, being underfunded by the state of Mississippi. Uh, there was a surplus even this year. I mean, Mayor Lumumba, I blasted him back in the spring, the state legislature for refusing to, to, to like make upgrades that were needed. And you heard Governor Tate Reeves in Mississippi, like again, put this all back on the city, which like then plays in for him politically to say that, you know, this is like, you know, a black run city that just doesn't, you know, is trying to do all this socialist type experimentation and referring to kind of the Lumumba political legacy there. And uh, that's what you get, you know, you get inefficiency and and that's essentially, that needs to be pushed back on in a major way. And I think that what you're just the absurdity of like, not just Jackson state, but these like high school football teams, like having to go and, you know, having coaches like, you know, go to laundry, mats outside the area where they, there is enough water pressure to wash their uniforms just so they can practice. They've already had like so many disruptions with COVID the last couple of years. And, uh, and, and, and these coaches are trying to keep things going, just be a huge amount of bottled water, not to mention the, all the problems there are with like, you know, plastic water bottles kind of in, in, in like the long-term implications of that from an ecological standpoint. But it's like, it sort of just speaks to the, just the, 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 the um, outrageous conditions. And this was very predictable despite the, the increase in flood water, you know, the flood waters rising from the Pearl river. Uh, but I feel like with the spotlight on Jackson state, depending on how long this crisis goes, hopefully it will have the, the effect of uh, politicizing some of the, the, the young, young men on the team and the uh, young people around the program there uh, with this intense media spotlight on Jackson state and also an increased focus on HBCUs, even amongst the, uh, you know, even in you know media circles, ESPN has made a concerted focus. I've noticed this year in their college football coverage to 
break down and preview some of the games coming up. And like you mentioned, Florida A&M, Jackson State, the Orange Blossom Classic, which is a big deal here in the state, in the state of Florida. You know, Jay goes back to Jay Gaither's legacy, um, the great legendary Florida A&M coach. So um, they'll probably try to, you know, divert their attention and be solely focused on, on the task at hand with, with trying to beat for trying to beat FAMU uh, in Florida this coming weekend. But um, ultimately I, I, this is not going to go away that quickly either. I mean, the infrastructure problems are profound and they were talking about privatizing, you know, Jackson's water supply, you know, just early, you know, I mean, I, I'm in the spring from an article um, that was you know, quoting Lumumba extensively talking about this. And this was, this was not some, natural disaster that no one could see coming and uh and the effects of it i mean the sports world's just the tip of the iceberg but it is a lens into it of, of you know the ripple effects of you know there's the day-to-day the survival but then there's just people trying to live their lives and uh and, uh, and whatever they do whatever their passions are and that's all being impacted and it's uh politics and race and class and all that really can't be separated from it Absolutely. And a little earlier, we were talking about how the war in Ukraine uh, is bound up in sports as well in the case of Brittany Griner, but also uh, uh, the Warrior Games uh, were recently held at uh, Disney World. This is an event that's sponsored by the Defense Department, and it featured uh, comedian John Stewart, who used to host uh, The Daily Show and uh, who gets involved with, uh, you know, liberal politics uh, from time to time in different ways, who actually gave an award to a uh, Ukrainian military veteran named Ihor Halushka, and he gave him the Heart of the Team Award for, quote, inspiring his team with his, quote, personal example. Uh, turns out, though, that uh, Yulushka is a member of uh, the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, which is pretty wild uh, uh, in, a, in a number of ways, obviously. But, Nate, I was hoping you could tell us a little more about uh, the Warrior Games and, and, and why is it that Nazis are getting awards uh, within the U.S. Uh, for their participation? Well, I mean, look no further than just like in, what was it, like May of this year, you had like the, the liberal intelligentsia class of New York City marching all over Manhattan, like doing a, uh, you know, in unison, like, you know, chanting out, you know, people that otherwise champion, you know, causes that are like, you know, public health and LGBTQ issues and anti-racism and stuff here at home, um, you know, proudly chanting, we stand with Azov, right? As if like that somehow, you know, they're on the front line somehow fighting fascism, like when they literally like don't even just bump the read between the lines or take your word for it or my word for it. They they profess their own beliefs and if you you know go down the telegram rabbit hole of following different <laughs> stuff like I do in the Russia Ukraine conflict and seeing the videos and you constantly see the positions when they get you know captured or, or taken by the Russian forces just like endless amounts of, of fascist literature and writings of Hitler and Bandera. It's it's not like that. I don't understand why this is like it, you can have a different opinion and disagree with. Putin's decision to to, uh, to to launch a special military operation, and that's fine. We can discuss that, but to act as if like uh, that doesn't exist is absurd. The Warrior Games, like you mentioned, are funded by the Department of Defense and and, and recognize you know people who've been wounded in battle and whatnot. And uh, you know, I think even Prince Harry has done has something similar to Invictus Games. I guess I'm not sure there's a connection, but I mean, this is all about you know John Stewart's like you know call, which I mean, I think generally is good when he's talking about. The exposing the, the lack of care for veterans um, in the U.S., the VA, and the inefficiencies and just, just the, the decrepit nature of like a lot of the uh, treatment shows how much they're really valued on a day-to-day level. So, I mean, that, that's not a bad word, but you uh, wish he would be as loud also advocating for like the victims of like a lot of uh, these uh, you know, imperialist military 
operation. So, uh, yeah, it's just, I just think it's case in point. The guy's literally having to wear a compression sleeve over his, you know, Nazi insignia tattoos. Um, they're as off, as off tattoo and the, and the sun one too. So I think it speaks for itself. And it's like the fact that it's a Disney world, um, a place that, you know, DeSantis has declared governor DeSantis to be the capital of wokeism. You know, uh, I guess they're, they're trying to step their game up with the, uh, with, with the, with the wokes, right. By, uh, you know, bringing out some, neo-nazi ideology so i it's just beyond the pale but it's the the reality we're living in yeah definitely and you know there was a similar uh massive demonstration uh not long after the invasion here in dc i saw it uh, with my own eyes or right by the the white house and uh that particular demonstration featured of the red and black colors of the right sector and i literally remember seeing uh, at least one person who had on a a scarf that literally had uh nazi collaborator stepan bandera's face on it and so this is uh the kind of thing that has been made acceptable through uh, a, a u.s imperialist aggression in instigating uh, this war in ukraine but as we know uh, raising this uh, important context is verboten here. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, September 2nd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, never by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-excuse me, 521-1320. That's 2 0252-11320. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. Can also hear us at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. Can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting live on Rumble at rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ted Rawl, award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel, The Stringer. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And Ted, U.S. President Joe Biden gave a speech in Philadelphia yesterday where he uh, basically seemed to be trying to uh, mobilize the American people to protect American democracy. Of course, uh, being in Philadelphia, he uh, sort of uh, highlighted the uh, symbolic importance of that uh, being in Philly and talked about the power of the concept of we the people. And I want to read uh, actually some of his comments that really, I think, get to the meat of what Biden was getting at. And this is from a transcript from The New York Times. And Biden said, quote, 
Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans, are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans, and that is a threat to this country. Now, Ted, this seems part of a real kind of a push or almost rollout that Biden and the Republicans, excuse me, Biden and the Democrats have been unfolding here with, I think, as its centerpiece, the sort of a student loan uh, debt uh, forgiveness piece of uh, $10,000. But that and mixed with, you know, like White House uh, 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 Twitter accounts uh, talking about Republicans that, uh, you know, abused PPP loans and things like this. It's just been sort of a very interesting sort of a narrative that um, Joe Biden is sort of driving here that is based on something that's fundamentally true and that uh, Donald Trump and the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, uh, you know, do represent a a kind of a danger here. I mean, uh, recently we saw, you know, Donald Trump talk about how as president he would pardon the people who were charged in January 6th, I think clearly implying that he wants more violence uh, of that sort. But, you know, the thing that this obscures, I think, Ted, is the role that both Joe Biden as an individual and the Democratic Party as an institution play in sort of the political crisis that the U.S. finds itself in right now. And uh, by choosing to make Donald Trump seem uh, like you know, the problem in and of itself, I think just pretty has some pretty clear uh, political motivations. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think those I think the implication that Donald Trump is the problem and that once we get him out of political life, the implication is that everything will be fine is, you know, as dangerous as anything that Donald Trump uh, is 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 it represents a danger as well. Um, he's going to. Um, I mean, Donald Trump is old and he's not in great health. He's not going to be with us much longer, at least in the world of politics. And then, but the but the underlying problems and contradictions of the American system are going to persist. I mean, you know, for example, um, you know, the the the, the non democratic nature of our election system. You know, I mean. Why is Joe Biden the president? He's president because he became the nominee because the Democratic National Committee put him in there because they didn't want Bernie Sanders, who was winning in the primaries, to be the Democratic nominee. And so, you know, it's kind of like kind of funny to hear Joe Biden, of all people, talking about the importance of electoral democracy. I mean, he's the beneficiary of arguably a form of cheating, not the kind of cheating that Donald Trump falsely accuses him of, but certainly inside the Democratic Party, he kind of cheated. And he, and, you know, we, we have some structural problems in the Democratic system, uh, in the American democracy, you know, uh, the Electoral College. I mean, if there were no Electoral College, Donald Trump would not have been president. You know, the, the two-party system, you know, again, that he would not have been president. The anti-intellectual strain of our politics, again, he would not have been president. Uh, the worship, the blind worship of capitalism and capitalists. Again, he would not have been president. 
the obsession with fame and the obsession and the willingness of the media to be fascinated by celebrity and the cult of celebrity. Without those things, Donald Trump would not be president. So, you know, and so when you focus on Trump, who's really the result of the problem, you know, you kind of miss the analysis, which is that, like, you know, the, the, the things that made him president and that make him a force in, the, in American politics remain and will stay, stick around and will stick around even longer because we're sort of acting as if Donald Trump were some kind of strange political anomaly. When, in fact, you know, he's, he's really a creature of the system, and we should learn some things from that. You know, you, when you start, uh, you know, when, when, you're, when you're coughing, waking up every day coughing and feeling terrible, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about maybe quitting smoking rather than, you know, just say, like, well, uh, you know, we've got to get rid of this cough and just take a lot of NyQuil. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not really, it doesn't seem wise to me. The point that you just hit on, Ted, is one that I've been making ever since Donald Trump was elected. And that is the fact that he is not an aberration. He is not a, a anathema to a, a American liberal democracy. As you say, he is, in fact, a product of it. And I would argue that, you know, for, you know, all of his swaggering bigotry, he's actually a more honest uh, uh, expression of uh, uh, the reactionary nature of American politics. And I think that that's a, a big part of uh, uh, why he's so, you know, offensive to the sensibilities of many within the mainstream, even those within his party. But what's interesting in, you know, this this speech where uh, Joe Biden is sort of waxing poetic and speaking romantically about American democracy and how we all have to band together to protect it. He didn't make any mention of, you know, uh, abortion rights, not by name. I think he said something about the right to choose. But it seems to me that women having the uh, ability to choose what to do with their bodies is a fundamental democratic right that the Democrats have not fought for. I mean, we've seen the uh, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how uh, all the time now we're seeing more and more uh, abortion bans and things like that take place in uh, different states across the U.S. and uh, and how the Democrats historically, whenever they had the chance to codify a Roe into law, simply refused to. And that, I think, is a, a pretty typical kind of a strategy, if you will, that we see from the Democrats. There's all these issues that come up that the Democrats claim to care so much about that uh, have a clear impact on the people that they consider their base, but they don't fight for them. And it's not a situation where, you know, they're not aware that they have that power. They're very aware that they have that power, but just uh, refuse to use it. And so, you know, as it pertains to uh, uh, this, I mean, they could have taken a range of emergency action. They could have opened uh, abortion facilities on federal land, you know, in these same states that have banned abortion and then, you know, undertaking a legal and political struggle to uh, defend it. They could have eliminated the filibuster and could have passed a law that legalized abortion at the federal level. They could have done that and not needed a single Republican vote in Congress. And so it's a situation where the Democrats have sat idly by and 
just watched as, uh, uh, you know, little by little, different fundamental rights are being peeled away from the American people. I mean, we can say the same thing about, you know, these uh, uh, big businesses attacking uh, workers' rights, uh, uh, the attack on voting rights for, for black people. I mean, they were pretending that they, you know, wanted to do something about racist voter suppression. Haven't seen a lot of movement on that. And so even with all of that, that all of that context and really that reality is completely disappeared from what we heard uh, from Joe Biden in Philadelphia, Ted. And as such, it just seems to me that the Democrats really just don't have an interest in really addressing these things. They want to pass the buck and make uh, uh, someone else uh, the problem. And see, the thing of it is, is that if you raise these things, well, then you could be accused of being pro-Trump. Of course, it's a completely uh, a dishonest argument. But obviously, the issue is not that Trump is good. It's the fact that the Democrats, as well as the Republicans, this duopoly, this ruling class political duopoly that we have here in the United States, have worked in tandem to uh, uh, pull back all of these uh, basic rights. And it seems that the Democrats right now are just mobilizing in this way um, out of fear of what may happen in November of this year and in 2024. But, you know, even with that, the real issue of democracy within the U.S. uh, continues to go uh, basically unaddressed. You know what I mean? Well, Sean, I I really like that you bring that up. Uh, While you were talking, it reminded me of something that uh, LBJ said uh, when he was talking about the political risks of uh, supporting the Civil Rights Act. And he said, well, you know, what else is the presidency for? And, you know, it's I think about the collapse of democracy in Weimar Germany in the 1920s and early 1930s. And, you know, it wasn't that German people didn't like the idea of democracy, but they didn't think it was doing anything. It was delivering on any on anything on their needs and their desires and uh, you know trying to address the economic and other problems that they were facing, and I I think we're sort of in a similar place here where a lot you know democracy you know like you mentioned for example the failure of the Democrats to act I think uh, particularly of when Obama had uh, you know supermajority in the Senate and he just, and he could have uh, codified Roe v Wade into federal law. At the time, and I, you know, it wouldn't have mattered now. It would, you know, the, the Republicans would never be able to overturn it because of some form of abortion rights are so popular with most um, with most voters that they just would have to suck it up and put up with it. But I think he would have, you know, if what good is democracy if it doesn't deliver on your needs? And so, you know, that's the thing about Biden. It's like he's talking about, like, well. You're going to end up with you have this profoundly anti-democratic party, and they represent this issue. But I think the problem is for a lot of voters. They're like, well, what in the back of their minds is what has democracy done for me lately? And even for liberal and pro-choice voters, the answer is maybe not a hell of a lot. And um, and that's really where the danger is um, because it's. It's, uh, you know, obviously as flawed as democracy is, we don't want to see it replaced with, uh, you know, uh, autocracy. Um, but, uh, but that's how it happened, is when the political class uh, no longer has the courage or the will to expend political capital, to take chances, to do things that people care about, 
then you're on the way out. I mean, and, you know, in the case of Roe v. Uh, the, you know, you see the cynicism uh, with the Roe v. Wade stuff in that the Democrats, you know, they could have they could have stopped this, but they've been fundraising on Roe v. Wade rather than trying to act. I mean, if they've been trying, I think no one would fault them, but there isn't the sense that there really has been trying. And that's a serious problem that, uh, you know, just like insulting 45% of the voters, which is really what Biden did last night, uh, you know, maybe they deserve to be insulted, maybe. Uh, but but insulting them, I think it's, it's bad politics, too. I, I don't think, um, you know, there's, you can insult Trump and try to make him look small and hope that people peel away from them that way. But insulting the, 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 the voters, sort of like Hillary Clinton did with the deplorable comment, that doesn't usually work very well. Yeah, and I mean, you know, speaking of what Democrats in the Biden White House actually did following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I mean, Biden established a task force on reproductive health care access. And so, you know, it was doing things like promoting research and data collections on maternal health incomes, excuse me, outcomes, uh, ensure healthcare providers comply with federal non-discrimination law. I'm reading this from the White House uh, website. Support patients traveling out of state for medical care. I mean, anything except actually, you know, fighting to enshrine what should be a, a basic right into law in this country, which, as we've been saying, and it bears repeating, they've had opportunity op- after opportunity to do for years and years and years, but have steadfastly refused. And Joe Budden, as an individual, has a documented history of being uh, against uh, abortion rights. And so for him to uh, uh, sort of pretend that the contrary is the case, I, I think is uh, pretty ridiculous. But this, I think, speaks to an issue, Ted, that has been pretty evident and really a strong current in American politics in the time since Trump's uh, presidency, and that's this uh, Trump derangement syndrome. And you actually talk some about this in a recent piece on your website, Rawl.com, where you quote uh, one Edward Luce of the Financial Times, who uh, recently posted a tweet that said, quote, I've covered extremism and violent ideologies around the world over my career have never come across a political force more nihilistic, dangerous, and contemptible than today's Republicans, nothing close. And I just feel like if you have any sense of history, I don't even think that's true within the context of the United States. It's certainly not true in the context of like global history with all the atrocities that we've seen uh, throughout the years. You know what I mean? But see, but this is acceptable because Trump And that wing of the Republicans that he represents because they're so repugnant that apparently you can just say anything right uh, about them and have it be true. But but again, this is what it takes us away from a place of reality. And the fact that there's this uh, all this focus on this one person in terms of uh, or instead of the uh, uh, systems and institutions that undergird all of it, it actually makes the whole question just that much more muddy and murky, Ted, and thereby making real solutions that much more difficult to grasp. Yeah, like, uh, you know, in the, in that same piece that you quoted, I, I just sort of, you know, mused about, you know, he, he, he's heard of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, right, uh, in terms of nihilism and violence and extremism. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like, what? Uh, he's heard of the KKK, right? Um you know, you heard of the John Birch Society. I, I, you know, it's, it's it's kind of baffling that people can say things like this. Educated people, 
can say things like that. And, you know, and just sort of everyone says it's okay. He, you know, he was echoed on that tweet by the former head of the, the NSA and the CIA, Michael Hayden, who, uh, you know, is, he has some re, a repugnant uh, resume. But, you know, I, I didn't know that he was an idiot until I, said, until I heard, read them saying that he, that he agreed with this. Um, Donald Trump, in, you know, in many ways, in many ways, is actually like sort of better than other presidents in, you know, I mean, like he was, and also that's something that's worth saying. It's a mixed bag, his record, right? I mean, he's, a, he's obviously, we know the brief against him, uh, you know, the bigotry, the racism, uh, the, the rude, crude, and socially unacceptable tweets. Um, but he also, you know, he was willing, he was skeptical of foreign, of uh, U.S. interventionism. He was, um, he is a person who is willing to talk to foreign leaders without precondition, as he did with uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea. He expressed a willingness to talk to Iran. Um, you know, these are, you know, kind of good things. Donald Trump is not the problem. The problem really is that we don't have a very vibrant democracy and we don't have a very responsive democracy, which is why we have one of the lowest voter turnouts in the developing in the developed world, and we are and we just have so much cynicism in the polls about the public approval of the, you know the, the the president and like the idea that the system is going to uh, how long will democracy continue to be viable? There's so much pessimism because it's not responsive, and I, I think that you know that's the point that. Biden's missing in his, I think, his unfortunate speech. I, I think it was a not good for the country, really, to uh, try to blame one class of voters. Um, I think he should have taken a different a, a different uh, direction. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Ted Rawl. And Ted, you know, speaking of the uh, piece that you've recently published on your site, uh, Trump's critics are even more dangerous than he is, you make a point that I think is very relevant, but I think has been sort of lost uh, in the infamously short historical memory of the people of the United States. And that's the fact that Donald Trump did try to steal an election, but then you look at the 2000 elections where George W. Bush literally did steal an election. He was successful, and it looked very different. It didn't look like a bunch of uh, uh, armed uh, reactionaries in the streets of uh, Washington, but it uh, was no less uh, really a quite uh, aggressive thing. And because the uh, political class in this country, that wing of the ruling class, because they care more about a peaceful transition of democracy 
uh, not, not even democracy, a peaceful transition of power is what I mean to say. They care about that ritual more than actual democracy. Um, the Gore campaign basically demurred on a, a, a recount. They took the coward's way out. And as a result, we got the uh, uh, George Bush, George W. Bush presidency. But see, this is the same George W. Bush that has now been rehabilitated and accepted into the liberal political mainstream. Precisely because he's a part of this uh, uh, so-called anti-Trump uh, resistance, even though he successfully did what Trump failed to do. I mean, this is the lunacy of the, the political moment uh, uh, that we're in, Ted. And uh, uh, now, personally, I, I am optimistic that we can uh, organize a, a movement in the streets to, to fight this sort of thing. And I tend to think that that's going to be uh, the thing that will really make the difference in this situation, because we see that uh, the people in leadership, they don't have any principles or anything like that. We know that they're beholden to these uh, money interests, despite what they tell us in these great sounding speeches. But, you know, even the most glaring of contradictions, it's just wild to see that they don't even uh, 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 become acknowledged, let alone reconciled. You know what I mean? No, they don't. And, you know, I mean, the idea of George W. Bush being rehabilitated is so galling. And, uh, you know, and, and while we're at it, uh, Dick and Liz, Dick Cheney, through the, you know, by extension through his daughter Liz, has also been rehabilitated. I mean, we're talking about a man who conned the American people into the war against Iraq and also to, against uh, Afghanistan, which obviously, you know, kind of came to its shameful denouement uh, last summer. Um, it is amazing to me to see how, like, well, you know, as long as as long as you're the enemy of this sort of, I mean, I, I suspect that, you know, what the ruling classes are really upset about with Donald Trump is less about, you know, a threat to democracy, supposedly, as, as much as like what he exposes, the, the power of populism, which has become, you know, is, is now a dirty word because of him and the way that they've characterized him. I think they're, they're terrified of what it, what it means is that he represents a threat to them. He's extremely disruptive. You know, he was able to basically take over the Republican Party um, with nothing really more than a Twitter account and $2 million and a shabby office in Trump Tower. Um, you know, it's kind of an impressive feat. Let's not forget, this is the first man ever elected president who had not served in any political office whatsoever or in the military. I mean, you know, at a, you know, in, in I think the military guys like Zachary, you know, Zachary Taylor and all those guys, uh, they were, you know, all high-ranking generals, Eisenhower. But uh, you know, so so I think you know he's he's he he's where he is right now. But you know, you, Bush sort of exposes the fact that like if things switch up in the future, um, we could very well end up in a situation where ten years from now. Trump is rehabilitated and himself is used as a way to try to stifle some new populist movement and and to try to you know shame the people who are part of that. So, you know, it's it's basically really sort of the revolt, the elites revolt, uh, where they're they're saying, look, you have to vote for corporatists, whether they're uh, on the official left in the Democratic Party or on the official right in the Republican Party, 
anything else is illegitimate. I think that's what this is really all about. Trump derangement syndrome is about. Yeah, no, I agree with that, because what, what, what Biden has started doing is saying that Democrats, independents and mainstream Republicans basically have to organize a uh, an anti-Trump front. And as we've been hearing, he went out of his way in this speech to separate the the Trumpist from, you know, the mainstream Republicans, which basically implies that they're the quote unquote good ones. You know what I mean? And this is how we get the rehabilitation of people like George W. Bush and Liz Cheney, who has almost become like a darling of uh, liberals in uh, the United States now. And it even sounded like when he talks about independence, it sounds like, you know, uh, uh, an appeal to to those who, you know, maybe generally vote in alternative parties and, and things like that. And I mean, looking at at the the efforts of uh, uh, Andrew Yang, what is this thing called the uh, the the Forward Party? And I saw something else earlier that was a similar piece. It was called like No Labels. And so there's like there's also this um, sort of outside attempt at um, building a kind of like neutral, neither red nor blue, a mainstream political party, which I think is quite uh, interesting here, Ted. But no, I tend to agree with you that uh, that is what is sort of going on here in, in how Biden is trying to rally the troops, which I think will make it that much more important for there to be a, a real insurgent uh, a campaign, uh, you know, in some of these upcoming elections and certainly in 2024 from the left that's really pushing um, a people's program to so many of these issues that the Democrats and really the entire political mainstream in this country refuse to. You know, another thing that I wanted to touch on uh, uh, with you, Ted, is, you know, uh, the, the the recent death of Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the last leader of the Soviet Union who uh, uh, recently died here, someone who was beloved by the West and uh, the U.S., and they've been hailing him in the time since his death. Now, what feelings are about him within his own country, I think, might paint something of a different story, as he is someone who is seen as helping to to deal some of the final death blows uh, to the Soviet Union, which caused just massive suffering for not only uh, uh, Russia, but really for all of the former Soviet republics. And uh, you published a piece about this as well on your site, Ted, uh, in a title, in in a piece titled, The U.S. Played Gorbachev for a Fool. And so how is it that Washington played Gorbachev for uh, a fool here, Ted? And what do you see as his real legacy? Well, I mean, you know, I, I certainly think that uh, what the people of Russia think of Gorbachev is far more meaningful than what the people of the United States or any other country think. Uh, you know, he, he should be judged by his own people first and foremost. Um, Gorbachev fell under the sway of like neoliberal advisors from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in the final years of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. He was encouraged to engage in perestroika, uh, which was the privatization of uh, small to medium-sized businesses, which he did sort of overnight and uh, at their at their behest. You know, this would later under Yeltsin be called shock economics when this moved on to the privatization of state-owned businesses, uh, big you know big enterprises like the oil and gas sector and manufacturing. And it, and it crashed the Russian economy. Um, you know, it's not, you could sort of, I think, forget why this was a mistake. Because, but the fact is that there was already a really good precedent 
for how to do this correctly, the transition from a socialist economy to a free market system, if that's what you wanted to do. And that precedent was China. Deng Xiaoping began a system of a gradual system of, of reform in the late 1970s after the death of Mao Zedong that took a good 2025, 20, arguably years, it's still arguably still happening. And they wanted to bring state socialism in for a soft landing and, and, and convert to a capitalist state. But Gorbachev sort of, you know, agreed to do this quickly. And when I say that he was played for, you know, a sucker, uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, there was an implication, although never put in writing, by the IMF and the George H.W. Bush administration, that there would be kind of a Marshall Plan uh, in place for post-socialistic um, Soviet Union, and that they were going to sort of be caught, and, and they weren't going to allow it. It wasn't considered to be in the interest of the world or the U.S. in particular to have the USSR become a failed state. And so Gorbachev believes them, and that's just wasn't true. And when, by, by 1988 to 1990, when the crisis was truly afoot, that had really been caused not by socialism, but by the attempt to convert to capitalism, you know, the, when Gorbachev went begging to the international community for financing, Bush and the rest were like, oh, I don't remember making any promises. And they sort of, and you know, figures in the Bush administration later admitted that it was a huge mistake and that it was an intentional decision to stand by and watch the USSR collapse, and because they thought the U.S. would benefit from stepping into the power vacuum of a unipolar world. Well, okay, you can say that might all be great from an American perspective. I don't think it is. And, but it created all sorts of problems. I mean, Russia itself saw a massive amount of poverty, starvation, ink spiking in alcoholism, all sorts of premature deaths. You know, I remember going to the former Soviet Union in the late 90s, and you didn't see that many people over the age of 60 anymore. And when you asked about that, you know, people kind of looked, shuffled their feet and admitted that, you know, a lot of grandparents had died from hunger because the economy was such a c catastrophe. That didn't need to happen. The U.S. pullout, I mean, sorry, the Soviet pullout from Afghanistan and Soviet Central Asia, you know, fed, created a power vacuum that uh, replaced secular Muslim societies with, you know, radicalized, like, Taliban-type factions in places like the Fergana Valley. There were, you know, lots of—and then, of course, the U.S. and unfettered free market capitalism basically have run rampant ever since without a Soviet counterpart to push back against the narrative uh, of, of the U.S. system. I mean, I don't think for example, the U.S. would have invaded Iraq in 2003 if the USSR were still around. Uh, the USSR probably would have helped Saddam Hussein, and they, that would have probably made it too hard to invade. So the U.S. has been running wild. And, you know, I also think, you know, capitalism is supposedly a system that, that cherishes competition. But in the marketplace of ideas, it doesn't want competition but I think even capitalism benefited from the existence of Soviet socialism with all of its flaws and contradictions. It benefited because it sort of forced capitalism. It was sort of like, well, there's another alternative. And people in capitalist countries like the U.S. on the left 
had a model where they, you know, maybe not a perfect model, but a model where they could say, look, there's entire parts of the world that are working, trying to build socialism. Now, the left doesn't have that to look at anymore. And it's really made the left rudderless, which is not to the benefit, really, of anyone, including, they don't know it, but including the right, because it means, again, there's no competition, there's no vibrant political discussion in this country. Yeah, we've got, a, I believe we've got Dave uh, back here now. Uh, Dave, you there? Yeah, can you hear me, Sean? Yeah, go right ahead. Hey, happy Friday, Sean and Ted. Actually, when I was growing up, I was fairly young when the um, Soviet Union um, um, broke up. But I do remember that at one point, the birthmark for Gorbachev, I think, was used as like a fashion statement on the runways, on runway models. But my question is about uh, the Jackson water crisis. I try not to pay attention to when politicians like, like Biden speak lies. So I didn't watch this thing last night. But I'm going to guess that he didn't announce an immediate end, an immediate fix to the Jackson water crisis. I think I saw a price tag that all it takes is $1 billion uh, to shore up their, their water infrastructure, which, um, you know, we have a hard time um, making sense of these large figures, but $1 billion for the U.S. government is rather trivial. And sometimes I really wonder if they're really trying to put their, you know, their thumb in our eye when Biden announces, you know, yet another $10 plus billion to go to Ukraine for a war that no working people in the U.S. asked for. So, I think, you know, they funneled, you know, upwards of 40 plus billion towards this war, yet we can't help uh, predominantly black city out in Jackson. So any thoughts on that? And if you all think that Biden one day will pull in Obama and go to Jackson and pretend to sip the water like uh, Obama did in Flint. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate your question. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, Ted Roll, your thoughts. Yeah, I don't think Joe Biden's going to go to Jackson and try and pretend to sip the water. Um, you know, ever since that was memorialized in a Michael Moore movie, uh, that's probably something no politician will ever do again. Um, but I, you know, I think look, uh, the caller is, is Dave is, is is has brings up a really good point. Um, you know, we're reminded constantly that there is an infinite amount of money available for uh, you know priorities like militarism. Uh, but really nothing comparable for the American people. And, you know, the, the billion dollars the caller you know, mentioned, it, it's true. It's, it's a drop in the bucket in the federal, U.S. federal budget. Uh, we, during, the, during the Iraq occupation, we were blowing through that in Iraq in a single week. And, uh, you know, whereas that would completely change the health prospects of, and, you know, even things like real estate values, in that an entire American city, not to mention, you know, prevent people from getting cancer and so on. I mean, you know, there's, there's no amount of money that should be too much for uh, safeguarding the health of American citizens. But, you know, you know we, we can see that, like, for example, uh, a new study came out showing the effects of the lockdown on nine-year-olds uh, during COVID and how reading scores and math scores are way down over the last two years of pandemic. And I was watching Fox, and they were blaming the teachers' unions and saying that the teachers were, were refusing to work, and that's and it's because they were lazy, and that's why. Like, no, the teachers didn't want to work in schools that didn't have HVAC systems, didn't have proper masking, didn't have enough space for proper social distancing, that weren't following or had the ability to follow CDC guidelines. And why couldn't they follow those things? Why couldn't they have HVAC systems? Because the billions of dollars are going to places like Ukraine, 
instead of going to staying here in the United States, helping American people. Um, so I think, you know, there's no, that can't possibly be reminded or discussed enough. It's impossible to talk about that too much. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Ted Rawl is here. And uh, Ted, you, you were talking about this issue about uh, the test scores of American students, which have in fact, plunge to levels that have not been seen in decades in this country. And you were noting about how, uh, you know, teachers and teachers unions are being blamed and that sort of thing. Well, it's completely unsurprising. I mean, it's a part of this uh, passing of the buck that happens from the ruling class as a way to cover up their own uh, uh, mistakes, because this is obviously just one more consequence of the criminal mismanaging of the corona virus pandemic in this country. And also, I was looking at this recent piece about how, you know, uh, the Biden administration has approved even more billions of dollars for Ukraine, but while at the same time saying there's no more money for free COVID tests. While also, I'm uh, just thinking about how we've been discussing um, uh, Joe Biden giving $37 billion to the police and wants to uh, put, I think, 100,000 more cops on the street. And so it, it really feels like at at every level that uh, it's sort of um, supporting the, the point that we've been making and that Donald Trump uh, uh, being poised as the unique evil when this Democratic administration is uh, attacking people's uh, livelihoods at so many levels uh, just seems uh, pretty absurd. And, you know, it's hard to, to feel like there's not going to be some kind of political fallout from this, Ted, uh, in a number of ways. I mean, we talk on the show quite a bit about a rot that uh, uh, has been eating away uh, at the United States. And that rot, uh, uh, we say, basically as a result of the collective social, political, and economic deterioration that's going on in this country that is only being deepened uh, uh, by the, the Biden administration, which we were told was going to save us from uh, a Trumpism. And, you know, it's funny, people get upset when you suggest that Democrats and Republicans are more alike than they are different. And the more time goes on, Ted, the more the mainstream political environment in the U.S. just seems like, you know, a kind of conflict between different wings of this ruling class, neither one of which cares much about uh, the plight of the rest of us, which I think could just uh, spell some pretty troubling potentialities, to say the very least, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, um, the speech last night um, by Joe Biden, you know, it was basically Joe Biden out trying to out-Trump the Trumpies. You know, I mean, the, Trump relies entirely on motivating his base and getting them out to vote. He makes 
There's no conciliation whatsoever to Democrats or other voters. Uh, it's just like, uh, you know, it's war. Uh, we have to we have to stick together. We have to fight hard. And, you know, Joe Biden offered and campaigned on something different. I mean, I think personally what he campaigned on was naive, but that's that was his brand. And now he's in complete violation of what he claimed to believe in. And it's, um, you know, I, I think it's toxic for the system to have, uh, you know, to have two parties that both basically view the others as like scoundrels and evildoers, even though, frankly, they both do <laughs> evil <laughs> and scandalous things. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, the whole thing, it, it makes me very nervous. I mean, uh, Joe Biden was elected to bring down the temperature, and that's not what he's doing. I mean, you know, I, I, I think there's been some moves in the right direction recently, uh, you know, in a flawed way, for example, with student loan forgiveness, uh, which is going to help a lot of people who really need help, and that's great. Um, I've pushed for that for a long time, and it's glad, I'm glad to see it happen. Um, you know, and but I think, uh, the, you know, the civility. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have a, a, a vibrant debate, but to class, you know, characterize all the voters for one party, even though he, you know, took pains to say, well, there's MAGA Republicans and there's non-MAGA Republicans. I mean, that's kind of sophistry because. You know, most Republicans, almost all Republicans, they did vote for Donald Trump in the last two elections. You know, so he's really talking about almost all Republicans. Yeah. And another thing that popped in my head in terms of how the, the Democrats helped to give us Trump, uh, one of the ways was that they uh, sabotaged uh, the person running that could have defeated Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders. You know what I mean? Precisely because uh, Bernie was coming with a pretty basic, a progressive program, certainly uh, something that is quite uh, uh, forward thinking in the context of, you know, the, the United States mainstream political scene, perhaps not, you know, in, in, in the global sense. I think Bernie's program is, you know, fairly uh, middling in, in, in different parts of the world. But be that as it may, I mean, the Democrats waged an all out assault on Bernie's campaign and scuttled it uh, not once, but twice. And uh, while at the same time uh, painting him and, and anyone to the left of the uh, Democratic Party establishment as like, you know, people who are trying to pave the way for uh, a Trump presidency, either for the first or the second time. And it's the same rap that we hear as it pertains to uh, alternative parties. And and uh, I believe, uh, you know, you know, in certain states, we, we even saw Democrats that uh, organized to get, you know, the Green Party removed from uh, uh, certain ballots. And so I think that that also kind of shows the hypocrisy of the Democrats pretending to care about democracy and things like this and wanting to protect our system when they themselves as an institution, engage in activity that is basically uh, employed to get rid of their uh, political rivals. And they seem to do a much more thorough job um, uh, uh, punching left and uh, getting rid of their enemies to the left, who are generally uh, less well-resourced and things like that, than they are uh, to their right, including the, the the Republicans. You know what I mean? And so it it, it, it I think that that's 
sort of a, another way to, to to look at this. And you mentioned about how, you know, Joe Biden sort of ran on a weak platform. I mean, I agree with that because as ever, the uh, uh, real only line, the most potent line that uh, Joe Biden could say in terms of why people should vote for him is that he is not Donald Trump. And I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton's attitude for running for president is that it was her turn. Uh, her, her husband was president. She had to suffer uh, all manner of uh, public embarrassment uh, around that uh, in a number of levels, not to mention the fact that her own resume as an imperialist leader was pretty impressive. So she she's entirely legitimate in the realm of uh, U.S. mainstream politics. But still, she lost fair and square to a reality television star and uh, a professional wrestling Hall of Famer. And, and because of that, they had to concoct this uh, uh, Russiagate myth to try to uh, cover all of that up. You know what I mean? And so, you know, in so many ways, uh, the Democrats uh, not only helped pave the way for Trumpism, but they very well could be doing so right now. I mean, I think a lot remains to be seen in terms of what will happen in the midterms and uh, the 2024 presidential election, Ted. But, you know, wherever it is that we end up, uh, there's plenty of blame uh, to go around uh, for what got us there. Uh, uh, And as we say, you know, to the detriment of the struggling people here in the United States who continue to watch their conditions uh, deteriorate. There's no question about that. Um, you know, and I, I think, again, the willingness of the Democratic Party to kneecap Bernie Sanders exposes, you know, their true ideological orientation. I mean, let's get real here. I mean, like you point out, Bernie Sanders, by European or international standards, is no great shake as a lefty, right? Um, you know, he, in, in even by American political standards, I think he's sort of basically Hubert Humphrey in 1968 or George McGovern in 1972. You know, that was mainstream liberal democratic politics. And it's just that the 50-yard line of American mainstream electoral ideology has shifted so far right since then that we're now in this place where, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders seems like a wild and crazy guy. Uh, But, you know, at least that's the way he's characterized by the media. Um, but the fact that they can't even basically allow, you know, Hubert Humphrey in 1968 to be, a, you know, to be a force today that he's considered an existential threat to the system. I mean, that gives pause and it should really make people think about what, quote unquote, mainstream electoral politics is, which is to say it's very right wing. Um, you know, by international standards and even by post-war American political standards, uh, you know, like someone like Richard Nixon, I think, could not be nominated in the Democratic Party today, in the Democratic Party, because he would be considered too liberal for the Democratic Party uh, in so many ways. Like he thought the the environment was super important. Uh, He opened diplomatic relations with China. Um, he uh, in, he imposed wage and price controls against corporations that were furious about it in order to control inflation. Um, you know those you know that direct uh, government control of the economy is something that they just you know they they wouldn't allow today. And I mean they as in the corporations that run both parties and the media. 
Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. And even, uh, you know, I was mentioning the Russiagate piece a moment ago. And, you know, of course, we were talking about the recent death of Mikhail Gorbachev and his relationship with the West and the devastating impact that that had on the people of uh, the former um, uh, Soviet republics. I mean, th- th- they have not forgotten this, right? Uh, the, the Russian people have not forgotten what was done to their country and uh, what happened that, uh, 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 you know, gave them this uh, intense and severe experience of suffering for all that time as the the current Russian Federation uh, uh, sort of rebuilt itself this time as a a capitalist nation. And I mean, that also goes for people like Vladimir Putin, who who saw these things, uh, who saw how these things played out, who have seen how uh, the country was basically sold out to different interests to the detriment of uh, the Russian people and had absolutely no intention of doing something similar. And the U.S. seeing this, of course, resents it and has been on a demonization campaign of Putin for the entirety of his presidency, even when Putin was trying to take something of um, an accommodationist stance with uh, uh, Washington in the early days of his presidency. So all of that, I think, sort of helped set the trajectory of of even a politics within Russia to this very day. Um, But we've got another caller we're going to squeeze in here real quick. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I know I don't have that much time, but, you know, it, all of this is, I think, you know, some level, I think that we should possibly revisit uh, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. And uh, the, the, the Democratic, when the rest of the world, particularly the global South, is moving in the direction of a unipolar world, uh, the United States, when a Democrat or Republican still wants to be the global hegemon. Uh, and what brings to mind is that a lot of politics is based on precedent. And it's just, is this really troubling to me? And I'll continuously say this, uh, that, and when you start looking at Flint, Michigan, now Jackson, Mississippi, uh, a lot of that is at the, the feet of Barack Hussein Obama. If, you know, we could have addressed this about a stroke of a pen, bringing the Army Corps of Engineers to address what had taken place in Flint, Michigan, and that ostensibly would have also been a foundation in terms of how this situation could be addressed in Jacksonville and Jackson, excuse me, and across the country in terms of addressing the infrastructure. But I'll stop there and allow you guys to comment to my to respond to my comments. Thanks, and you guys have a great weekend. Are right, you too, Mo? Thanks a lot. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Ted, your thoughts? Yeah, the caller's right. I mean, uh, you know, it, Obama was a really interesting uh, figure and uh, I think pivotal in sort of the triumph of neoliberalism in this country. Obviously, uh, you know, the Clintons are not to be underestimated in this, like, uh, wall of shame. But Obama, you know, he was, uh, was so charismatic, so popular, uh, so... Um, a professorial and impressive, especially after eight years of the sort of jittery, manic, uh, you know, pseudo Connecticut cowboy George W. Bush and his uh, ridiculous wars. That you know, I mean, people people just uh, almost they went a little crazy when he when he got in. They really thought like, okay, first black president, everything everything's going to be better now. The Nobel Prize Committee <laughs> tripped over themselves to give him a. Nobel Peace Prize, basically just for being him. And 
uh, you know, because he hadn't had time to do anything uh, that deserved a Peace Prize. And, you know, looking back, you can really see how, you know, he made, I think, a choice not to change. You know, he, he got in there, he, he ran as the, uh, to the right of, uh, you know, John Edwards, uh, sort of care- very carefully, studiously saying very, very nice things, but, but kind of without a lot of content. And as he himself has admitted, you know, people, he let people project their own hopes and desires on him. And he's a, he's a fascinating figure because he could have done so much better. You know, I, I think of Colin Powell. You know, I, I think of the Hollywood possibilities. I imagine how Colin Powell in 2003 walking up to the dais at the United Nations and uh, starting to deliver that speech on weapons of mass destruction and instead just interrupting himself and saying, you know, I'm not going to do this. It's all lies. It's BS, as he had said to his uh, confidants a couple of days before, um, according to Newsweek magazine, and just rip up the speech and saying, forget it. There's no cause, reason to believe Saddam has WMDs. Uh, you know, the country, he's a terrible dictator, um, terrible government, but we don't go to war just because someone's got a terrible government and I'm not going to be part of it. He would have been president for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot there. Well, we thank you so much, Ted, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.